So, Anastasia, yep. can you quantify potentially how much iron you lose in a hemorrhaging situation? So, say yeah. for you know per liter or hundred mils of blood, how I, much I iron would do we actually lose? I would say she's probably lost two grams. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, I can't remember now, but it's something. Yeah, there's, so, there's, there is a formula about how many grams of iron there is per litre of blood. So Depends on your hemoglobin, though, doesn't correct. it? Correct, and, so and your BMI and things like that. But this yeah. this is a large, large, large amount yeah. for... Um, so if someone loses two litres, yeah. you can't go wrong giving them a gram of iron to replace, that, to replace uh, that lost blood. That is... I would say that would be a minimum. Yep. Okay. Yep. Hi everyone, back, uh, we're back again for part two of our patient blood management sort of anemia discussions with uh, Anastasia and Nolan. Uh, thanks guys. Um, so we've got another hypothetical case to discuss. Um, I'll read it out. So case two, Mrs. H. Emmeridge. It's not very, not very clever, but <laughs> um, so this woman is in ASCU, which is our, for those who don't um, no, our hospital is a, our sort of high dependency area, which we put um, patients post delivery or surgery if they need a sort of hot, more high, higher level of monitoring than the ward. Um, so she, this hypothetical woman, is a 22-year-old female. She's indigenous patient, and she had minimal antenatal care, um, and she's um, had an instrumental delivery, uh, followed by a PPH, and she ended up having a back replaced with an estimated blood loss of two and a half liters. Um, so, so now she's down in ASCU, which is our high dependency ward, and she has a hemoglobin of 74. Um, so these, this is a pretty non, is that a pretty familiar scenario? Sounds um, pretty, I think it's pretty a pretty common situation that we've yep. faced here in, in this institution. Yep. Um, yeah, and I guess the first question is what are we going to do about the anemia in, in that situation? Yeah, what are the options? Um, well, I think first and foremost she's a, is a young lady who potentially will tolerate a lower hemoglobin um, compared to an older lady with other complex medical comorbidities in that situation. So yep. theoretically, um, anywhere from even into the 60s in terms of a hemoglobin um, doesn't necessarily need to be transfused um, because that's what people will often jump to in this particular situation. Um, but there's added complexity in terms of in terms of this particular case with an Indigenous background as well. We know um, there's poorer rates of... Um, of overall health quality in, in this particular subgroup of patients. They've got much higher rates of underlying uh, anemia and iron deficiency in particular. Yes. And uh, we often, in, in this particular situation, um, while we've got uh, patients like this in hospital, we really need to try and optimise them as much as possible, um, particularly if they're, they're travelling to a, uh, to a location afterwards, which might be some way from their family doctor or their GP. Um, and so certainly in this situation, it's really on a case-by-case basis. It shouldn't be an automatic um, trigger for transfusion at this particular point. Um, and it's really on an individual case-based assessment in terms of whether it needs to be transfused or not. Um, and I'm glad Anastasia's here because I think one of the, the difficult questions that I still struggle to get my head around is how we use intravenous iron in this particular setting. Um, what, are, what are the sorts of things we need to watch out for in terms of using iron? Um, after a hemorrhage when we might not have pre-existing iron studies. All right, that's a really good point. I remember, uh, before we go into that, can we tease out a few mm. other things? Is that okay? And then we'll yeah. definitely answer that because that's one, uh, one of the points that are coming up. Um, 
I was hoping that we could sort of um, touch on all the different things that we could do and then r- explain why we mm. think it's a good idea or not a, not a good idea. And I was thinking um, one thing we could do, um, which I have seen, which I um, disappointingly see reasonably often, is nothing because we could decide that hemoglobin 74 is okay, doesn't need transfusion, and then we don't do anything else. Um, and she'll get her battery out and she'll mobilise and then she'll go outside for some cigarettes. No, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, this is the sort of thing that um, someone who just hasn't engaged in antenatal care and then she'll leave the hospital um, before we've had a chance to intervene. So that was one thing that could happen. Um, we could um, offer her some Oraline. Um, maybe we'll, we'll ask Anastasia and Nolan about what they think of that. Or we could do, as Nolan was mentioning, um, give some intravenous iron. Or we could transfuse her. Mm-hmm. So, so in my mind, those are the sort of the five scenarios that could play out. Yeah. Is that five or four? I can't count. Four, and I think. <laughs> and if I could add an overarching message to, yeah. to this beforehand is that um, in an ideal world, um, we'd look at what could we have done to avoid getting to a 2.5 litre PPH. Yes, um, there's another. In of, <laughs> well, in terms of appropriate yeah. use of uterotonic agents mm-hmm. and yep. uh, and other options to avoid that degree of blood loss. Yeah, that's and right. And then going back, um, how could we have optimised this lady prior to her delivery Yes, um, despite the, uh, the minimal antenatal care? Um, and again... For me, this is where IV iron really comes into play because we we might only see this woman for a, a short period of time. It may be difficult to get them um, back to antenatal clinics. And so when you do have them, uh, sort of want to be able to optimise them as much as possible at yeah. those particular yep. visits. Uh, and that's where I see a, a real role for, uh, for IV iron. So we'll often see it through here um, if they've been admitted with preterm labour or something. And, and I'll often say we need to optimise this lady before they're discharged um, because they may not have good access to iron. Once they're discharged back um, prior to coming back for the delivery. Okay, so let's um, can we delve into yeah, intravenous iron? Is that, that's the option that most of us are probably thinking about. I, I absolutely agree with those as well because we know that um, she's one of these ladies. I'd be worried that a in our previous podcast we talked about what dose of IV iron we'd be giving this woman. Yep. So I would think um, the set and forget one gram of IV iron would be inappropriate for this woman uh, okay. to really optimize her because I think. You're really saying you're going to have one bite of this cherry to optimise her. And it's not just her, it's her baby as well. Yes. Um, and it's her family and it's her community. And so I think... And her next pregnancy. And, and which may only yep. be around the corner. And we know that um, if we... if So I think there's multiple risk factors for this woman uh, to have a PPH. Um, so we know that women who are um, of First Nations descent and had minimal antenatal care are both at high risk of iron deficiency. And that is a risk factor for PPH anyway. And so like Nolan's saying, prevention is the most important part. Um, but it doesn't mean we can't do the best we can for her to try and minimise her harm on subsequent pregnancies. Um, and so I think intravenous iron is absolutely the right, product, uh, right approach for her. And right. I'm just, I would probably think she'd need um, a, a, either a adequate dose of iron polymotose that is calculated to her blood loss and her haemoglobin, um, or two doses over a period of time of iron polymoto- uh, of um, iron composite. Okay, so I'm going to be devil's advocate now. So this woman um, had uh, an iron infusion, in a, no, sorry, had some iron studies um, two months earlier, mm-hmm. and her ferritin was 41. Because yep. I've heard this before. Um, so, so she doesn't have a low ferritin. She doesn't have iron deficiency. Um, what do you think about that? Well, that's, that's what I've heard some people say. 
but she has now lost two and a half litres. She's lost two and a half litres and she's had another two months of pregnancy. And yep. so she will not have normal iron stores. So Anastasia, yep. can you quantify potentially how much iron you lose in a hemorrhaging situation? So say yep. for you know, per litre or 100 mils of blood, how much I iron do we lose? I would say she's probably lost two grams. Okay. Yeah, so, so um, I can't remember now, but it's something... Yeah, there's, so there's, there is a formula of how many grams of iron there is per litre of blood. So Depends on your hemoglobin, though, doesn't correct. it? Correct, so and your BMI and things like that. But this yeah. this is a large, large, large amount yeah. for... Um, so if someone loses two litres, yeah. you can't go wrong giving them a gram of iron to replace, that, to replace uh, their lost blood. That is... I would say that would be a minimum. Yep. Okay. Yep. So it is appropriate. I guess, I guess what I was trying to tease out is that... Um, it is appropriate to, to, to the, the way of thinking or the pairing or the, the concept mm-hmm. of using is like that. Your blood is the biggest store of iron mm-hmm. in your body. Absolutely. Your red cells are the biggest store of iron yep. in your body. And when you lose blood, you're losing iron. And so I and guess so that's lost, why when we're talking iron. about how yeah. to quantify someone's iron stores, that's why I always talk about the iron studies in your haemoglobin because your yes. iron is stored in your red blood cells. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely agree. And I think the difference if we're talking about some of the guidelines we're smiling about and thinking about internal processes. Yeah. Um, when we look at iron studies to assess iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia in our setting, they're, um, they're preventative um, future-focused responses this is a in reaction in reaction to an event. So I think using iron studies uh, in reaction to an event is is fraught yep. because it's actually not what you've got now. That that was a historical map of what you had before. This is what if you looked at her blood uh, her iron stores in three months, that's going to be a different story yeah, as a result really of low. this. Yep. So I think that's how we should think. So one is um, proactive and one is reactive, and okay. I think they're different approaches. And can I? Anastasia, just to clarify with you as well. So my understanding in terms of uh, we we tend to focus on ferritin mm. and we focus on a, a threshold of 30 mm-hmm. from a ferritin perspective, but a ferritin of less than 100 is suggestive of iron deficiency. It's just that less than 30 is diagnostic. And so Roger's situation of 41 mm. in her particular situation is still su- highly suggestive of iron deficiency. So I think if you use um, subtle words such as your iron replete or your iron deplete, and yep. you, there's a whole spectrum of that progressive iron depletion until you become deficient and you're causing harm um, or you're having um, absence of building blocks to actually make red blood cells and having... Uh, so I think you're on that spectrum. So she yes. was a deplete when you had um, when you knew about her two months ago. Um, now she will absolutely be deficient as a result of this blood loss. Okay. And Sorry, Anastasia, I'm going to pick your brains again, but in terms of... I think we know about the maternal implications of mm. anemia and low iron stores but mm-hmm. um, what about the neonate or or the fetus essentially what are the implications of significant iron deficiency in these situations so I, that's that's the part that i actually really feel as um our um our so- social contribution is really really important because these unfortunately are the so- sort of women that we have generational effects that um the mother uh, the mother's uh, obstetric journey will influence the neonate's life and that will predict their outcomes as well. Yes. So we know that uh, if a woman comes into into delivery and she's severely iron deficient, that the neonate's iron comes from the mum and the best predictor of the neonate's iron stores, and we'll start a very simple thing first, that um, that your uh, the cord ferritin is the most likely prediction of the neonatal, uh, sorry, the neonates and then the infants 
uh, iron stores at six months and 12 months. So that's easy and kind of pseudo measurable. But what's difficult to quantify is that we know during early development, the cells that need a lot of increased cell turnover and need the most amount of metabolic energy, such as your CNS, are really, really affected by iron deficiency. And you need iron to make your myelin and to develop into your to your grey matter and your white matter. And we find that those babies that have unfortunately been uh, born to women who are really iron deficient do have neurocognitive um, deficiencies that do not reverse by the age of five years. So we're not just directly impacting mum with her increase her um, her moods and her quality of life, her increased risk of PPH and her anemia going forward. You may potentially. Uh, impact on the mother's um, milk supply and also her bond with her baby because of mood disorders as well. Okay. And can Thanks I throw so on here? Can here. I throw on here? So what about the, the, the pregnancy that this woman's going to have in 18 months? Yeah. And, and the, her fetus that then exactly grows inside right. her and is iron deficient? That's, that's that really what we're I've, talking I about. I sort of feel like we should be fixing that as well. I, I feel like we do have a... Con- we, if we're aware of this, we should do our very best to prevent it happening. And interesting, I, I think just observationally talking to women about... Uh, correcting their iron deficiency mm-hmm. when you talk about the potential neonatal risks associated with ongoing iron deficiency it's often a big driver uh, for women to, to then get their iron deficiency appropriately treated um, Absolutely. because we will often find that mothers will sacrifice things for themselves um, in terms of their overall well-being by being iron deficient and anemic and that, but when it comes to what they might do for their baby it's a different mm-hmm. situation in that regard Great. Um, so we see the same things with smoking All cessation right. and pregnancy. I thought I'd like, because um, we're on top, how about we go into a few um, um, uh, issues that are sometimes controversial about IVI in, mm-hmm. in our HGU patients, our ASQ patients. So this woman uh, has got a background, so she's on intravenous antibiotics. What are, um, some Sometimes some of the staff um, say that we're not allowed to give intravenous iron if someone's on antibiotics. So that's, that all comes back to this controversy about is there a relationship between intravenous iron and bacterial sepsis? And um, I think that's, that's debated, um, but I think that's possibly where this, this comes from. What, do you what are your th- thoughts on this? My, my thoughts are that she's my, it's a risk-benefit um, balance and the, the, the huge benefits of fixing her for her sort of long-term health and her children's health probably outweigh the fact that she's on some because she's got a background. Yeah, I think we're, we're often placed in a difficult situation because there's a potential paucity of evidence for it. Yeah. And so I know from personal experience, you know, simple antibiotics because they might have a background is different to the woman who might have choreo and, yeah, that's and right. be, be febrile afterwards and yep. I'll tend to have a, a lot more caution in those situations and you might only delay the IV iron by 24 to 48 mm-hmm. hours in that situation. Um, but I think it is is in an area where there's the evidence is not necessarily as strong, but there's concern about sepsis yeah. in these situations. I, I, I agree to, completely. Yeah. You've got to tease out the difference between someone who's on antibiotics just as a precaution, but doesn't actually have any signs of sepsis. Um, but I, like you, I agree. If they actually are unwell with fevers and look, look like they've got some sort of bacterial infection, then we probably should hold off. What do you guys think? I um, so to answer the what is the evidence in this space? So um, the there has been this thought because um, we know how iron helps regulate. It can um, help regulate. Uh, it's part of your innate immune system, and so it can yes. help um, provide some sort of bacteriostatic sort of effects. So yep. that's kind of where the first kind of translational bits of information came about iron and infection. 
going from that, there's been only really systematic reviews and meta-analysis that has says there's a, a, a signal for an increased risk of infection. But those patient populations are ICU, critical care, and very, very, very unwell patients. Yep. And how I tend to approach this is depends how busy you are looking after that woman so if you have multiple subspecialties seeing this woman you're running around constantly and she ha- and you are busy keeping her well or alive or stable I- IV iron is not the time that's not the right time for her yep. but if she's had an acute episode and we are on that tradition a trajectory towards discharge then I think it's the appropriate time for her to have IV iron so it's really about um, just doing the end of the bed assessment isn't it so if, um, if there's six pages of notes on one day, she's probably too unwell to get IV iron. But as soon as she's not that unwell, then I think you should be moving to IV iron. All right. Um, what about she has... I've still got quite a few more things to tease out. <laughs> what about she's had... Um, someone's, someone's talked to her and they've given her two units of blood and she's going to be discharged. Has that fixed? Because two units of blood in my head, that's... Uh, they're about 200, 200 mils, so four or 500 mils of um, red cells, but she lost two and a half litres. Mm. So have so we fixed her, and if uh, are we just like... Well, I'll stop you there for a minute, Roger, because <laughs> I just want to want to bring up the well, principles of patient blood management. Yeah, well, actually, I have skipped ahead to you. Um, yeah. it just in, in terms of, and I thought I'd just raise it, because you talked about giving two units, is that uh, in a young, relatively yeah. well patient, ideally from a patient blood management perspective, we would use a single unit transfusion, yes, I agree. recheck the haemoglobin, recheck the symptomatology before we give another unit. Um, but it's quite common that we'll see prescriptions for two units of red cells, essentially. Yep. Um, whereas technically with the PBM hat on, we should do a single unit transfusion, recheck, recheck symptoms yep. before giving more. Right. I'm going to uh, interrupt there as well because that's one of my questions here. So, that, so the, the PBM guideline says transfusion might be indicated when someone is symptomatic. What is, so this is really actually quite tricky, what is symptomatic from anemia? Like, you know, if I was going to be pushed, like I was asked this in a viva or something, I would say, you know, organ, uh, evidence of organ dysfunction from anemia would be things like, Delirium, you have CNS dysfunction, so you, your brain's not working, that you've got chest pain, um, that you're short of breath. You know, those are sort of really usually only c- kick in when your hemoglobin's really low, like say 30 or less. Um, but then um, there's lots of other things which um, are used as a sort of surrogate of, of symptomatic anemia. And um, you know I what I mean? Like, uh, like yeah, dizziness. And, and, look, and, I, and I think that's the most common ones that we see as well. Yeah. They say, oh, she's dizzy when she's standing up and or feels a bit tired. and Yep. Fatigue, dizziness, um, difficulty mobilising, a lot, lot of those things. Are, so, first of all, what's the science behind that? Um, how how useful are they? I mean, there's, there's so many things that contribute to sort of dizziness when you stand. You know, you can have a normal anemia if you've just been lying in bed for two days. Mm-hmm. You get dizzy when you stand up. Um, that can happen to all of us if we're, we're bed-bound for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, how do we tease out who's symptomatic from an anemia and it's going to benefit. Yeah, and look, that's... I, I, I'm just going to say... I think it's it, tricky. I think it's, it's difficult at times because probably the most common symptoms that we're told about is um, she is feeling dizzy or difficulty mobilising and so we want to transfuse her. Um, yep. But that may not actually be in her best interest um, overall when we, and may not be in the best interest from a patient blood management perspective. What are, um, I'm going to ask um, Anastasia, what are the long-term consequences of getting, or possible long-term consequences of getting a transfusion that you um, that you could maybe, say say you've hemoglobin 70, 
Yeah, because you're not going to die if you don't get transfused, are you? Let's face it. Uh, not in a 22-year-old. No. No. So if we don't transfuse her, even if we just did absolutely nothing and didn't give her any iron and sent her home, she 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 wouldn't come to any harm, uh, any serious sort of harm. But um, she might get transfused for symptomatic reasons. Mm. What are the potential pros so and cons of, transf- of I transfusion? I think most people on this podcast will know about the myriad of data that really says that uh, transfusion is independently associated with worse patient outcomes. Um, there's a lot of unpacking that comes with that, um, and and this is and it's a different patient population, um, but they talk about increased length of stay, increased time, uh, increased risk of infections, increased risk of in cancer patients, increased risk of that cancer coming back, increased yep. risk of morbidity um, and prolonged hospital stay. Um, and so that was kind of the real basis 20 or 30 years ago of why people were trying to say we should be have really good stewardship with the use of blood products and it needs to be an informed decision. But it is like almost everything we do to a patient, be a medication, um, you know, an antihypertensive, fluids, yep. pretty much everything we should be thinking about, um, about the risk, pros and cons. I, I'm feeling a bit sorry. I, what I don't want to happen is nothing because people yeah. say 20, uh, she's 20 and a hemoglobin 74 and she's young and she's fine. That's what we don't want to happen. And I think, unfortunately, there's no... If we do... When we use our clinical assessment of a patient, it's um, you ask the patient how they're feeling, so it's obviously patient-related. But I actually think it's more subtle. I personally think they're more subtle signs um, than, you know, br- cerebral and cardiac symptoms. Yeah. I think of what other compensations has your body had to go through to manage this, and it is compensating. Yes. Yep. So I'd say tachycardia, respir- increased respiratory rate, um, hypotension and a postural drop, but a young person can tolerate that. Yep. Um, so I guess um, what there was a nice little study in, in transfusion a couple of months ago that actually says a patient's need for uh, likely the, the, the thing that correlated with a patient needing a transfusion was actually increased respiratory rate. And yep. many people actually know that that's one of the uh, kind of biggest flag of a deteriorating patient. We always focus on the respiratory rate. And it's a sign of everything not being right rather than a specific yep. thing not being right. Um, and a lot of people don't necessarily do your respiratory rate during your observations. Um, but I guess I'm just showing uh, sharing that as a next level when you're assessing a patient about symptoms. The whole point of a blood transfusion, the only point is trying to increase the oxygen transfer in the body. Yep. And that's kind of the goal of what you're trying to achieve. So she was given a single unit to achieve that outcome or urine output or whatever else we're trying to achieve. I think that would be okay if if somebody thought about that decision. So if we have to, but even if she got a single unit of red cells, she absolutely needs IV iron. She absolutely needs that as part of her management plan. At some stage, yeah. And I just want to put my national standards hat on here (laughs) for a moment because... Um, what's really important and often forgotten is that um, all blood product uh, infusions or transfusions need to have informed consent. I was, um, was going to bring that up. And how, how often do we talk to these patients about the, uh, about these decisions? Yeah, and I, I, I can't... I, I don't know if we actually do it very well because often patients will have ticked on, the, on their mm. consent form that they agree to a blood transfusion, but... How often are the risks associated with a blood transfusion actually properly elucidated to patients pre yeah. preoperatively pre surgery? So that's I mean I, I like like a, that tick box on the pre op consent. That's for when they're hemorrhaging in theatre, they're under an anaesthetic, or it's, it's an emergency. But I think um, when they're in an HDU, they're not bleeding, they're stable, and they 
you know, this is a really just a, this is a choice that the patient should be making in an informed uh, discussion with whoever's looking after them. So everywhere else I've worked, I've always had a separate consent form for blood and blood products. So you yep. allocate the importance of doing a proper informed <coughs> consent. Um, and so I, you always talk about the alternatives. You talk about the risk, pros, and cons. I think there's a really important um, there's really important things to understand how to consent patients for blood and blood products appropriately. Most people just fumble over the risk of HIV, the risk of yeah. you know hepatitis B, hepatitis C, but I don't actually talk about the common things that occur commonly and what the alternatives are. So. Um, when I'm consenting, when I'm teaching my haematology registrars, I spend a long time on that sort of stuff because that's actually what the patient needs to know. Because they can get antibodies uh, mm-hmm. as well, can they? And so the risk of allo- red cell alloimmunisation is not insignificant. Um, she so there's and this may impact um, women's life going forward. But um, in the setting of an indigenous patient, they do have uh, because your red cell antigens are uh, um, genetically derived. Uh, if you have distinct patient populations, you're more likely to f- develop red cell allo antibodies, and so that's the same as someone from Southeast Asia or the subcontinent right. or um, or Africa. Um, just their risk because the Australian donor pool are predominantly Caucasian, and so you're okay. An so there's risk different different red cell antigens amongst those mm-hmm. two populations. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Anastasia, can you correct me if I'm wrong here in terms of where we're heading? But one of the reasons that transfusion sometimes is preferred is the relative cost to the institution associated with the transfusion. And I understand things were potentially changing in terms of the funding model for transfusions from the MBA. Um, but at the moment, in terms of the, the cost between state and federal governments, um, can you elucidate or expand on that at yeah, all? Yeah, so for those people who are interested, um, uh, Australia, even though we're one country, we are multiple jurisdictions and there's different rules and regulations in each jurisdiction. Um, if you're in the eastern states, you have you pay for your own blood and blood products. So you it's so the institution absolutely is yeah. right. Western Australia is one of the last places that uh, the department, of, the state-based Department of Health, so the um, local, sorry, the state um, government pays for or substitutes the cost of blood and blood products. So Western Australian state pays for our transfusions. Uh, whereas I've heard just recently speaking to the chief of medical officer on Tuesday that he's really advocating for that to be flipped for us to follow the rest of the rest of the other states and territories over east. And that was my understanding, which would be coming in here, is that we would be paying at an institutional oh, yes. level for it. Six hundred dollars a unit of red cell. That was that was going to be my next question: <laughs> is what what is the $600. what is the actual the actual cost? Um, and I think it's important to understand that that might be the cost to the institution, but there's costs from the donor perspective and, and various things. And so yeah. what, $600 for a unit of red cells yep. and cryo uh, and other products? Cryo is about 1800 for, for a, an adult dose. For an adult dose, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's, again, just one of the reasons why patient blood management is such an important aspect of everything that we do. Um, and we have been somewhat fortunate because we haven't had to directly pay for it. Um, but so when we directly pay for it, there'll be a different push. A thousand milligrams of iron polymaltose is about thirty dollars, yeah. because yep. I got the pricing a few it's years back. Mm. Yep. yep. Yeah, which is, to be honest, probably not any different to like six months of ferrograde C or something like that. It's about thirty dollars <laughs> a bottle. Is it? Mm. So, it's, so it's actually even it's a lot. Same. It's a lot mm. cheaper than oral iron. So if you get a, iron a, polymaltose, a nice, anyway. pretty, fancy. Um, well advertised uh, elemental, 100 milligrams of elemental iron, it's $30 a month. Yep. 
So going back to, um, so just sort of sort of wrapping this up, I mm. guess. This is going back to like um, the few times that uh, I take it on my shoulders to go and talk to one of these uh, um, patients in ASCU. I'll, I'll just go and tell them all the different options. Like I'll, I'll say to them, well, listen, we could do nothing, but I don't recommend that. Um, you could take iron tablets for, like, I say something like, um, I'd say you've lost two and a half litres of blood, you probably have to take iron tablets for six months if you really wanted to fix that. Um, a lot of people have trouble mm-hmm. with um, side effects and most people, to be honest, stop well before that, yeah. so, you, so you may not completely fix it. Or we could give you iron, which is, um, you know, $30 and it takes about an hour, an hour and a half and we can do it while, you, while you're still in ASCII before you leave. And then you don't have to think about it again. Where you, sh- you should probably just go and get some bloods checked by a GP in a month or so. Yeah, yep. uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't say you don't think about it, but you don't have to take tablets. Yep. Um, or we could give a, a blood transfusion, and I say they are good in the emergencies when you're having trouble transferring oxygen around your body, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, occasionally that that is required in this sort of situation. But I'm not sure that that's something that we have to do for you right now. But you might it might take you a little bit longer to get over the. Um, you know, the up and around and getting going and that sort of thing, or a few days longer and, and uh, you know, because sometimes people, it is true, I think, when if someone does get one or two units of blood, they do seem to feel less dizzy and get up and mobilise a bit quicker over the next day or so. Um, but it's probably only buying you a day or two um, in, in, the, in sort of a, that sort of sense. Um, uh, and usually, I, you know, I, I, I say that I'm biased and I recommend intravenous iron and most of the time they're, they're pretty keen. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask Anastasia a tricky. Well, I actually wanted to ask Anastasia a tricky question about um, antenatal and postnatal women or or preoperative. When you've used intravenous iron, um, what do you do in relation to oral iron at that point? So, yep. in which women should you continue using oral iron? So I thought the same question when you brought it up, but when mm. Roger started to think about it. Mm. So. Um, because of what happens with your hepcidin post, because um, you've had a lovely bolus of iron, your hepcidin will be up for a certain amount of time. We don't have an absolute clear indication of when that is, but it's probably at least two to four weeks. So I guess, I guess it would depend on the timing of um, so the how much iron you're going to give somebody, um, how low their hemoglobin is. Uh, so you could go, we'll give you institutionally if you want to give a gram, um, you yep. could say that she could have um, oral iron in a month afterwards. Okay. Yep. So there's no no reason why when you have an iron, you have an intravenous iron infusion, essentially you should continue with your oral iron in Definitely that setting. Not. So you yep. stop. Yep. And potentially restart if you're going to, to about four two yep. to four weeks down the track. Mm-hmm. Okay. But should you just get it rechecked? Yes. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. It's all about rechecking, um, and that. I think the important part of that is highlighting it's important. It's not just having a check for the point of having a check because you need to know, do you go back to your baseline levels? You're going to optimise your chance of doing all the things you want to do as a new mum as best you can. So um, I was going to ask you a counter slightly inflammatory comment. So imagine this. So we know that you need to have a, a minimum hematocrit for good wound healing. And so it's not just the... Um, how she's feeling her hemodynamic ability and her cognitive ability with her hemoglobin. So say she had to have a caesarean or she had something that, oh, she had ongoing ooze and, and trickling as a result. What are you thinking with her hematocrit would only be, I reckon, 0.18, Yep. Any thoughts? So if, if she had to have another procedure or... Well, no, just if, if she um, and unfortunately needed to have um, an emergency caesarean or um, something I always think, with wound healing. I always just think that 
giving someone a blood transfusion, though, you're giving someone stored blood, which is mm-hmm. not the same as their red cells. So the oxy- oxygen carrying carriage capacity is not as good. A massive immune hit when you, yep. when you yeah. give a, a donor red cell. Um, but also I think the evidence for surgical site infections in relation to perioperative transfusions and that is probably takes a bit to pick apart. Yep. Um, yep. And so I still I wouldn't say that it's a it's a strong indication for transfusion in yep. that setting. Good. And what about if she was still like she's had two point five litres of blood loss? You need things to stick together, and it's not just your platelets and your clotting factors. Uh, and if you're running around with a really low, and this is intentionally inflammatory, but if you're running low with a really running around with a really low hematocrit, you just don't have that same hemostatic um, potential as yep. if you had a better. So if she was bleeding, so if she was in theatre and she was hemorrhaging, mm. I wouldn't be sitting on a hemoglobin of 74. I'd be trying to fix that because it, it pushes your platelets to Absolutely. the edge of your yep. um, vessels and helps them block off the uh, yep. stop the bleeding I, so I we're talking about like a stable person Absolutely. who's not bleeding but, I, I guess but so in an acute hemorrhage it's different mm. isn't it yeah and can I, I i think it's just important to also raise that we've got to individualize it in terms of the patient that we've got in front of us yeah and so we'll look after some ladies in this hospital who are 50 kilos we'll mm-hmm. look after ladies who are over 100 150 kilos mm-hmm. um and that 50 kilogram woman with a two and a half liter hemorrhage is quite different to your yep. you know, 80 to 90 kilogram woman who has that degree of hemorrhage. Um, and yep. so your thresholds and your tolerances for what you're doing in those situations are quite different. Absolutely. And that's probably, if, if she only weighed 50 kilos, that would be close to 90% of her circulating volume. Yep. 2.5 litres. The other thing I was going to say, it would be important, I would say, um, if she was day one post-delivery with a haemoglobin 74, oh, I'd be pretty confident it would be in the 60s by the next day because of just that yep. natural, um, the haemodilution and the re uh, like how things Yeah, that's what we day. normally find, actually. Absolutely. So when they first Second hit, is when they first hit um, yep. ASCU, let's say, the 12 hours, it's usually yep. within the six, first 6 to yep. 12 hours they get a blood test. But the, but the next morning split test it's usually gone down absolutely and it's yep. just um, because you've got vasoconstriction try and stop you exsanguinating yep well any final comments I think we've covered that in a lot of depth <laughs> it's good we've teased out lots of issues and there's no right or wrong answers but I think there's plenty for people to think about um I definitely hope we've got people thinking about my my hope is we've got people thinking about talking to the to the patients and making decisions about what to what to do when it's a stable situation and getting them involved and not necessarily yeah, jumping to blood transfusion straight away. I'm not saying that we won't, shouldn't transfuse some people. I'm going to put a plug in for the next podcast, Roger. We'll yeah. talk about the things, other things that we can potentially do. Yes. And um, if this lady, uh, <laughs> I this can lady refused no. a transfusion. Yes, I can see that coming up. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll, we'll, Thank re- we'll reconvene in a few minutes. Thanks Excellent. again. Thank you. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time. Crit Care Podcast would like to acknowledge the Wajak people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.